Donald Trump's autobiography has four chapter 11s on this energy edition of Industry Focus. Greetings, fools. I am Sean O'Reilly, joining you here from Fool Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. It is Thursday, September 17th, 2015, and joining me are our energy authorities, Tyler Crow and Taylor Muckerman. So, guys, everybody enjoy the uh, Notre Dame-UVA game over the weekend? Um, I saw the last minutes that mattered. Last minutes, yeah. yeah. Okay. I've been watching a little bit more basketball lately, watching some of the international European basketball. Oh, yeah. Actually, no, the <laughs> South American or Pan American uh, ones. Although, what were you saying? Obscure. Kobe Bryant's cousin? Plays there? for Venezuela. Uh, I'm yeah. speechless. How... It's it goes back to like their dads playing in overseas places. Oh it's wow! Cool. Okay, you're cool. a Notre Dame game. I, I take it. Um, I was actually rooting for UVA. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, bummer. I you that. had him until the last ten minutes. Yeah, like, no, ten seconds. I, uh, it's a sad fact, but I had to be honest and be upfront with who I was rooting for. So, <laughs> uh, first up, I wanted to uh, discuss. Uh, we're not going to oil prices per se. We're going to be a little bit more. Uh, precise about what we're talking about but uh oil production is starting to slow down and uh we basically wanted to talk about why it's going to actually slow down in a big way but eventually um there are lots of signs that oil production will slow down in the future we uh just had a 2.1 million dollar drop in oil inventories earlier this week that actually led to a surge in crude prices uh so what do you guys think I don't want to say anything that's going to say it's going to happen in six months. It's going to happen a year from now. A lot of that, you know, it's price dependent. It's like, price dependent, and so much of that is just kind of can happen at the whims of the market that we can't really give a lot of credence to. I mean, just to give an example of this, if we look over the past couple of years, what have we been saying the market's been oversupplied by? By like what? A One mil- or two million, million barrels, barrels per yeah. day, and it's we've lost fifty percent of its. Price. Right. If you look back at 2000. It seems a little extreme. And, and that 1 million barrels is what? It's not even 5% oversupply it's, of it's global one market. One and a half or something. Yeah. yeah. And conversely, back in 2008, you know, we were a couple million barrels undersupplied and prices shot up in the $120, $130 range. So, you know, to look at that sensitivity to oil price and say, like, oh, because prices are moved, we're going to see a big production. It's not that big. It, it takes way more price movement than right. actual to see a change in production. But if we want to talk about some of the things that are actually going to cause a slowdown in production, almost completely price independent, you have to look at some of the things that are going on a little bit further down the road. Uh, we've got some slowing down of drilling permits and a whole bunch of other signs that say a couple of years from now we might actually see – a slowdown. We just yeah. don't know when it's going to happen. Well, so what about this rumor? Um, maybe Taylor, you can weigh in here. This rumor that like second oil prices hit sixty bucks again or something. All the shale drillers will just turn it on again and bring rigs back, and uh, that of course lead to an oversupply again. I mean, is, is that a fantasy? I don't know what price level that would be. Sixty dollars might make a little bit of sense for some of the best producers in the, in EO, the business. Correct me if I'm wrong. EOG said next year, early next year, they have all these um, fracked but not drilled, but not. Well, they've got the drill but not completed. So right, the completion completed, stage yeah. is generally the most expensive when you go in there and blast open the shale and then start extracting the oil. Horizontal drilling has become pretty cheap comparatively. So right. they've got all these uh, frack pads that are. Already seen the the drilling rigs go in there do their thing, and now they just need to pump sand and hydraulic. So they're going to com- what I was going to say. I think they're going to complete the wells they said at sixty five or next year, early mm-hmm. next year, either one. Yeah, and that's very well the case. But if you look at EOG and they say sixty five, you have to imagine 
the higher cost producers aren't right. going to be doing it at $65 a barrel. They're probably going to be 70 yeah. 75 80 um, But uh, if you, I looked at, there's 10 banks that I looked at, and mostly international banks, but um, only one of the 10 that I saw, which is standard chartered, expects oil to be above $80 by the end of next year. So a lot of shale producers are still going to be priced out, but each level of that you increase above, yes, there are producers that are just sitting there waiting, and and that is the problem I think of, of the overhang that you, that's weighing on prices, um, at least in terms of people that say, hey, IEA predicts U.S. oil production down four hundred thousand barrels a day next year, um, and then I think Goldman Sachs said earlier this twenty dollars might be possible. twenty dollars a barrel, but they <laughs> but they still expect a little bit of growth next year, but only like forty thousand barrels a day of growth yeah. next year. Um, but if you find the medium between the two, we're still producing less next year than we produced this year. Um, and if supply maintains or even grows or demand maintains or grows a little bit, um, because we are arguably the or one of this few swing producers now, um, you could see oil prices creep back up. But a lot of projections out there don't expect it to get back to anything near what we saw last year. Um, even through 2016, J.P. Morgan of the 10 that I looked at was the lowest, and they don't they expect oil in the low 50s throughout next year. So that's not much of an improvement. These these banks and economists, their record of predicting oil prices though is atrociously bad. Yeah, it's not great. But I think if you look at if you look at the overall, like I looked at 10 for that exact yeah. reason. I didn't just choose one or two. Um, and there are plenty more out there. Like I said, these are mostly international banks that I looked at. Um, the medium ground was right there in the sixty, fifty-five, sixty, sixty-five dollar range um, mm-hmm. for all these banks. So you don't want to take one in particular, but if you take them all with a little bit of a grain of salt, you can kind of average them out and, and right. imagine that somebody's going to be close. And as long as there's not too wide a divergence, and I, I don't think fifty-five to eighty dollars a barrel is too wide of a divergence because there are so many factors that contribute to this. Yeah, it's the one sobering fact that I always keep in the back of my mind when we're talking about oil prices is the fact that you know it fell through the eighty-dollar floor and just plummeted last uh, November when OPEC did their you know we're not going to cut deal. But um, you know, last year all the banks were saying, "Yeah, we see a hundred dollars out to infinity or whatever." Yeah. No, none of them saw this coming, and that's a very sobering fact. Well, we're going to realize exactly what they think, and the banks, anyways, in the next uh, in the next month when they look at energy loans yeah. and, and start trimming credit lines based on lower oil prices. M- money talks way more yeah. than projections. So you're, I think that. you're really going to separate the wheat from the chaff next month when when yeah. uh, the bigger, more profitable, better balance sheet heavy um, energy companies. Still have those credit lines outstanding, whereas some of the companies that are pushing their limits a little bit, some of the credit starts to dry up. Cool. So, uh, Tyler, before we move on here, um, so there are basically no Gulf of Mexico drilling rights being applied for right now. No, and like like we were just saying about slowing down production, you know, a lot of what we're talking about uh, price. That's a very – it's still a pretty short-term thing. We're talking you know, 12 to 18 months. And if somebody who's looking at the energy sector now as a 5 to 10-year investment, you know, there – it looks like – Which this, is what this Gulf of Mexico stuff. Right. And it yeah. looks like the seeds are starting to be planted for that sort of recovery over that 5, 10-year where we're going to actually start to see uh, a wane in supply again, which could – of course, bring back prices and incent a lot of people to get back into the market. Like we were just saying, uh, drilling permits in the state of Texas. So we're talking about the Permian Basin, Eagleford, a lot of the major some of the most players. productive in the yeah in some the, of the, the business. Is good yeah. some of the best in the, yeah. in the in the in the U.S. 
you know, their permit permitting is down two thirds compared to this time last year. In permits being approved, for, yeah. yeah, applied for, applied, applied, for, applied for. I'm for, sorry, yeah. Um, you have the uh, auction bids in the Gulf of Mexico have been abnormally low over the past Got couple of years. tumbleweeds going yeah. through these. Yeah. <laughs> the most recent um, actual auction, I think, was only $22 million, where two or three years ago we were... That was a rounding error. Yeah. yeah. We were looking at $300 million and things like that for auction blocks. And then this year alone, uh, if we look at exploration production capital spending, uh, we've seen a global decrease of more than $200 billion in wow. capital spending. So when you have that much delayed, suspended, you know, reconsidering for a later date. That's a lot of money and that will eventually catch up to the market sometime within probably the next five to 10 years. Cool. Okay. Before we move on to our mailbag question of the day, I wanted to reiterate once again that a very special offer to join all Motley Fool Stock Advisor newsletter is available to all listeners of Industry Focus. If you're a loyal IF listener and you have a, you have access to a special discount on Stock Advisor that works out to $129 for a fully two-year subscription, just go to focus.fool.com to take advantage of this offer. Once again, that is focus.fool.com. And uh, moving on to our mailbag question of the day, uh, we had uh, Aaron M. O'Malley. Thanks for writing in, uh, Aaron. Uh, he wrote in Far about- Far distant relative of yours, maybe. O'Reilly, of course. O'Malley. Of course. <laughs> um, actually, we're mortal enemies. No, I'm just kidding. Um, come on, Aaron. I'll, I'll buy you a pint. Um, uh, he actually writes about a recent Buffett purchase, Philip 66. He says, uh, I also wanted to ask if you could comment on the appeal of Philip 66 at current prices, given that it seems to have weathered the downturn in oil prices better than most and also has attracted the interest of Berkshire Hathaway, indicated by uh, several recent large purchases of stock. Um, Buffett, of course, just apparently threw a few billion dollars at Philip 66. Because that's what he does. He just that's throws what he does. billions. He throws billions of dollars at things. Um, they're of course more of a and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Tyler. They're more of a midstream operator. They do uh, transportation, storage, refining for chemical companies. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, what was it? 2013. Yeah. I think yeah. So. 2013. Uh, ConocoPhillips spun off its refining, marketing, uh, logistics, transportation pipeline stuff like that into Phillips 66. So basically, it took the integrated mi- model. And just kind of split it into two, so that ConocoPhillips could go off and do its own exploration, Be an expert, yeah. exploration production upstream, yeah. and then they split yeah. off the mid and downstream. Yeah, got it. So with Phillips sixty six, you have that, you know, kind of that play in the midstream pipeline where you're, you know, generating a lot of um, very stable cash flow, uh, things like that, and then a refiner which kind of works, kind of on that opposite as oil prices decline, they get a better price on gasoline or a cheaper feedstock so when they go to sell gasoline they get a higher profit so one of the reasons that it has the weather the downturn in oil more so is because it's built to do that yeah it's yeah, that I price was gonna say, i was going to caution against thinking about it as as aaron was it, it, didn't, energy, like, it didn't weather yeah. the downturn if you're it, hopefully they're not comparing it to producers yeah, and that was in terms of weathering uh, my next note here was um it stocks i mean flat over the last yeah. year, I mean, it's at seventy eight bucks. That's for like, it's not actually down. It's just hanging out, making money, or finding things, and, and paying a dividend. Paying a dividend. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what it is exactly, but it does pay one. Yeah. So, um, so what do you guys? I mean, is there a reason Buffett bought this over Conoco or any of the other? It's <laughs> a good question. Um, in my mind, if you were going to buy into this heavily, you would have to imagine that you would think oil prices were going to remain low 
for at least some extended period of time. So maybe that's his thought process. Maybe he's buying into what these banks are doing, or maybe he knows something that a lot of us don't. Um, it seems odd to me personally to buy a refinery when oil is at a level that it has never been at. Well, not never, but in, in a very long time. Except in extenuating circumstances like global financial crisis. Well, and, and even then, it wasn't that low for that long. Right. It, it was a pretty a pretty quick bounce. five and came back up. Yeah, it was a pretty quick bounce then. Um, it doesn't look like it's going to be that way now. Um I don't know. He he knew something when he bought um, Norfolk, Southern, Burlington, 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 and then yeah. they started shipping oil all over the country um, with the with the rails. So maybe he knows something we don't. And um, personally, Buffett is he's a, obviously a great investor over the long term, but he's not somebody that I think an individual should really model themselves after. Right. The, the circumstances are different. Buy and hold, sure, but what the companies that he's buying, he's buying for reasons that you and I. Right. In my mind, probably aren't going to want to buy for. And you, you have to keep in mind too. This he didn't just pick this up like last quarter. No, yeah, he knows uh, this company very well. He bought originally ConocoPhillips when it was an integrated company back in two thousand eight. So ConocoPhillips turned out to be a boo boo. <laughs> either way, ConocoPhillips Phillips sixty six has been part of the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio for coming up on eight seven years, eight years yeah. now. Um, it just recently did a, a few quarters ago. They did that exchange for. Uh, stock for basically an all-out purchase of a segment of Philip 66, which is called its Lubrizol, which is basically the marketing, distribution, and production of uh, lub- uh, specialty lubricants. So he knows this business extremely well. Um, you know, it, it is a cash generator. It has been for many, many years, where it you know throws off cash, buys back a lot of shares, does pay a pretty decent. Yeah, dividend. it seems the the Buffett angle that I. Th- thought, you know, when I, I read this question was, it just seems like there's very little downside. It could be. But, you know, again, you look at a lot of the recent deals he's done, a lot of them have had tax implications. He's either oh, just yeah, traded, just, shared, and just yeah. finagled, traded off a high-performing stock for for one that he just used all shares to buy. And so, he, you know, he's saving money. He's automatically making a return off these deals before the stock even moves. Yeah. So you have to, you really have to understand what this deal means for them in the immediate term, as well as the long term, when you're talking about Warren Buffett, because for me, if I buy a Phillips 66, it means nothing to me the next day. Right. It could mean a heck of a lot to Warren Buffett when April 15th rolls around and he has and the tax man comes knocking. Cool. Okay. Before we sign off, I uh, wanted to go over one more, uh, and this actually is kind of related to what we were just talking about with refineries versus uh, exploration production. But I wanted to ask a question of our uh, our energy experts here. Um, everybody keeps talking about how refineries are making tons of money today because oil prices are so low, which is, of course, the main input for refineries. One would think, however, that refineries would function more like middlemen, earning a more or less set spread between crude oil and end products like gasoline. Why hasn't competition between refineries kept the profits being earned by these enterprises constant, thus passing on the savings to consumers of gasoline, for example? Uh, who wants to go first? <laughs> I'll take a shot at it. Um I Why think, aren't my gas prices lower? No. <laughs> so, one of the things that you have to keep in mind with that relationship between crude oil and gasoline, or you know the refined products, is generally speaking, um, the price for gasoline, diesel, all of these, all of the products that are refined, the price for those are have a tendency to lag uh, crude oil market. Not necessarily, you know they. More or less, it follows crude oil, but it right. lags it by maybe a couple quarters. It's couple directionally months or accurate, exactly. But not. And so, when you're in a time like this where you have 
oil prices falling very rapidly, it's going to take a little while for gasoline prices to catch up to the decline in oil prices, which for that amount of time where a company like a refiner benefits from the spread between the two is very, very lucrative. Now, conversely, now why, why don't things happen to me? Is it because like contracts, hedging, like what's there, yeah, that's a great example. You have contracts where you know a refiner may take out some futures contracts on those refined products so that they get a certain fixed price on those things going forward, and that can cause a little bit of that lag. And you also have to take into account that you know gasoline doesn't immediately go from the refiner to the gas pump. You, know, yeah. you have the delivery and the logistics, and something that has been sold at the refiner isn't doesn't necessarily mean that you know you're selling at that instant price to the get to the pump. You know that the guy who's buying it for the gas pump that may have been sold several months ago uh, before it actually got to there. Now, conversely, say we were to have a rapid increase in oil prices, uh, that lag in gasoline prices has it will impact refiners in a in the wrong direction and you could actually see margins for them to compress. Got it. Anything mm-hmm. that yeah. You can export any most anything that a refiner produces whereas you can't export oil. So from the United so States kind anyways. of uh... Yeah, so the the refiners are dealing obviously oil is an internationally priced commodity um, but I think you're you're dealing with refiners being able to ship to the highest the highest bidder, right? right. So, um, it, as I understand it, we have a bunch of refineries here in the United States. Yeah, we have a ton. We've got them all in the mid continent. We've got some on the East Coast. California has a good selection, and then Canada has a bunch on the East Coast, as uh, the eastern side of Canada as well. Um, but they and they can export. So I think that that plays an important role in refining prices. But if you look, if you look at gasoline prices here versus gasoline prices in Europe. We're significantly cheaper, so right. Um, well, that lends itself to a fun little chart you sent me earlier. The component of a gallon of gas, and forty-seven percent of that was crude oil, and that's yeah. great. But another one was the taxes. Yeah, and that's is, that's set in yeah. stone. So yeah, there's a there's a floor that you're working with mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, got it. And just kind of going off of Taylor, we were looking at this morning, and I just uh, remembered to pull it up. Uh, the United States this past. Uh, past trailing four weeks, on average, has exported 3.7 million barrels per day of refined products. So gives you an idea of how much we're actually pushing right. out the door. That kind of keeps gasoline a little bit higher mm-hmm. here right. in the United States. So and it's just it's the supply and demand of the fact that we're kind of the world's refinery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, thanks for your thoughts, gentlemen. Have a good one. Mm-hmm. You too. If you're a loyal listener and have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Just email us at industryfocus at fool.com. Again, that is industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on this program may have interests in the stocks that they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear in this program. For Taylor Muckerman and Tyler Crow, I am Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening and full on.